This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello. Uh, welcome to the panel on technology for seniors, uh, which is the next one coming up. Uh, my name is uh, Ramesh Rao. I will be the moderator, and I wanted to take just a minute uh, to acknowledge uh, the influence my 90-year-old mom has had in helping me develop a deeper understanding of how invaluable technology has become to older adults. Her daily routine, much to my pleasant surprise, includes spending a few hours online, keeping up with her many multi-generational friends from all around the world, and I get to keep up with her just-in-time WhatsApp audio messages. Uh, we have uh, two uh, speakers uh, in this session. Uh, first up uh, is Dr. Tom Camber. Uh, he's the founder and executive director of Older Adults Technology Services uh, and Senior Planet. He's a leading expert on aging and technology, and he's regularly featured in national media. Under his leadership, Oats and Senior Planet have developed award-winning programs for older adults across America and are now charitable affiliates of the AARP. Uh, Tom is a man of many talents. Uh, he has taught courses on technology, urban studies, and philanthropy at Columbia University, is widely published in professional and academic journals, and has presented his work uh, on five continents. Uh, he's also a co-founder of uh, the Afro-Latin Jazz Alliance, uh, which has distinguished itself by winning multiple Grammy Awards and serves on several nonprofit boards of uh, directors and public commissions. So Tom, delighted that we have you back with us again. The floor is yours. Thank you, and thanks for the wonderful introduction. I think I need to shorten my bio. It's too long, <laughs> too many things going on there. Uh, but I'm thrilled to be here today and be talking about this really critical issue of uh, technology and, and older adults. Um, I want to do a quick um, presentation of just kind of a little bit about the work that we're doing, but I'll begin just with a brief uh, snapshot about myself so that it's not just the PowerPoint and what we've been doing at Oats uh, for the last 17 years. Uh, about uh, 17 years ago, 2004, I got together here in New York City with a group of other volunteers and activists, and we started a nonprofit organization that was dedicated to helping older people learn how to use technology and get on the internet. And we worked together for about uh, uh, five or six years, really just uh, connecting with uh, community organizations around New York and, and uh, developing different models to help people get engaged. And it eventually culminated in a program called Senior Planet, which is the sort of main framework that we've been using going forward around uh, aging and technology. So I'm going to tell you, uh, show a few slides, tell the story of that. Getting right to the point here, we've been, this is a quick uh, kind of timeline of what we've been doing here. OATS is a nonprofit organization. We are a social impact organization. So um, our, our goal here is not simply to, you know, judge ourselves by whether or not people um, are learning technology as a, a kind of um, market activity, but really what we're interested in is making sure that the work we do has some kind of relevance to aging and to social outcomes that we're interested in. So several years ago, about almost 10 years ago now, we did a uh, uh, kind of strategic plan with our board of directors, and we found that um, our mission, which had been focusing more on technology, should be adapted to focus more on aging. And so our current mission statement for the last uh, nearly 10 years is we harness the power of technology to change the way that we age. And that focus has really helped us zero in on the linkages between uh, teaching and training on the one hand and uh, outcomes such as social determinants of health and social engagement, uh, people's health and wellness, uh, things like sleep patterns, financial security, um, civic engagement and participation, and even creative expression. We have people uh, doing you know, book clubs and music events and writing plays and being active in different kinds of engagements. When we first started out with this program all the way back in, you know, uh, 2004, we were, we didn't have our own centers. We didn't feel that we needed to because New York City uh, has 240 senior centers and there are plenty of operations that have uh, computer labs and places to work. But as we got developing with the different models, we found that there was a need to showcase what was possible with technology. So we started this center in Manhattan called Senior Planet. 
And ever since then, our, our senior planet model has been uh, to grow these kinds of uh, technology engagements for older people, focusing on uh, what we call these five impact areas. So social engagement and health and wellness and such like. And we've actually created before and after surveys and evaluated the impact of programs and used that as a way of building back more uh, impactful models for growth and development with, it, with our initiatives. By 2014, we had taught over 10,000 classes. All of our programs are free to the end user. And a typical engagement would be between five and 10 weeks, a person would come in and we target programs at people over the age of 60. And um, they would come in twice a week for five weeks or twice a week for 10 weeks if they were uh, part of a series of courses. And at the end of that, they would be very successful and confident using email and internet um, and being able to activate um, a device of some sort. It's typically a PC or an iPad or a Chromebook. And then we develop that course into five different languages. So we teach it, uh, our basic courses are in English and Spanish and Chinese and Russian and also Bengali. Recently, we started teaching in Vietnamese and, and uh, other uh, translated languages around the country. And a few years ago, we expanded outside of New York uh, into programs in upstate in a rural area, uh, which, which in, uh, kind of uh, incubated our interest in, in focusing on rural older adults and then launched programs in San Antonio, Texas, uh, Palo Alto, California, and uh, Montgomery County, Maryland. So we were kind of beginning to expand nationally. Uh, big grants from different foundation funders and, and also uh, philanthropic sources like the Humana Foundation enabled us to do these growth, uh, engage in these growth efforts. And then um, very excitingly, uh, this year we uh, affiliated with AARP. So We've gone from being a small, like literally a tiny little program at one location in Bedford-Stuyvesant with me sitting in a, a lab with a bunch of older adults trying to figure out what people wanted to learn uh, and, and, and with a notebook and, and, you know, sketching out curriculum to the point today where we have over 100 staff working around the country. Uh, we're working to develop a 50-state model with the ARP teams around the country, and we've been able to really make a difference for uh, actually hundreds of thousands of people that have come to the programs and participated in person and online. Uh, so it's really made a big difference in terms of this footprint here. Uh, currently, this gives you a, a sense of sort of where we started with our, our footprint and our, our, our initial engagements. And these senior planet centers exist now in the different locations marked here. Uh, San Antonio is actually um, doesn't have a center yet, but they will eventually. And uh, the city of San Antonio just engaged in a long-term partnership with us. We're excited about that. And in each of those areas, we, first of all, work next to the older folks that we're working with. So there's a lot of co-design going on in the centers and in the labs. We tend to focus on mainstream devices and applications so that people are learning um, not just a, a program that's sort of senior focused, but also something broader that may have application uh, that's more mainstream, that their friends and family and, and neighbors and people that they're looking at on television are using. And then finally, virtually all of the OATS programs are partnerships with some kind of partner in the community. Um, with COVID happening, like everybody else, we did what everybody's calling the digital pivot, where we converted all of our courses online. And since doing that, we've had uh, phenomenal participation in classes. We've got health courses that have people, uh, over 400 people at a time taking, uh, participating in them. We're working with about 22,000 engagements a month. Some of those are more than uh, come more than once during the period, but we're uh, definitely working with tens of thousands of people around the country. And our net promoter score on programs like this has actually gone up to almost a night. Actually, this last month, it was a 90. So people are very positive about the courses they're taking. Um, we've been doing advocacy work, helping build programs around the country to help people get access to technology and connectivity. And the training has been kind of a, a central part of everything that we're doing. Um, on the program impact, we've done 7,300 uh, virtual programs since COVID started. Uh, we've been doing, uh, we've had 361,000 engagements, which is people coming onto the sessions and participating. And we've been doing capacity building sessions increasingly with partners around the country, um, helping people learn how to use these, uh, use the digital channels to work with their um, their partners um, and, and their, their constituents themselves. That's been very successful. And we're running for the first time ever uh, a series of programs to license Senior Planet programs and content to partners uh, who can help implement it in their communities. I could talk more about that in a moment. 
As I mentioned, we have these five impact areas. This is a quick snapshot of what they are. These are all photographs, by the way, of actual participants at Senior Planet programs and our advocacy or our uh, the, one of the women here is in our entrepreneurship program. Um, we've done all sorts of work um, with libraries and, and museums. And then our fitness programs where we've uh, trained thousands of older adults to get uh, connected with their bodies and go out and even gone to fitness centers in, in groups and gotten people um, able to feel more safe and comfortable working, um, exercising in, in groups and fitness environments. Um, that's been one of our main programs, our morning stretch class has about 400 people participating per day. And we also have, we've been adding recently things on uh, Tai Chi and Fit Fusion workouts and different things. We're finding that this uh, wellness and fitness programming is a real high priority for people. Once they learn the technology basics, that's a direction that a lot of people are taking it. Most recently, we've been highlighting uh, stories of older adults that are fit and active, and we just had a kind of a neat breakthrough uh, this last uh, about two weeks ago. Uh, we sponsor uh, five athletes each year who can be, um, they don't have to be very high uh, level in terms of competitiveness. Some of them are folks that are recovering from an injury or simply doing something like, uh, you know, one of them does lawn bowling, but he's really excited about sharing that with other people and sharing his fitness journey. And one of our senior planet sponsored athletes got a silver medal in the world championships about two weeks ago uh, in powerlifting. And this is her, her name's Abby. And uh, she's, you know, really helping uh, set the standard for people creating a real positive perspective on older adults using um, not just being fit, but also using technology to help evangelize and share their stories and learn from others as well. So uh, we sort of wrap a lot of technology programming into the outcomes that we're looking for. Um, recently, we asked people what they were uh, doing with internet, why it was important to them during the quarantine. Uh, of course, lots of people said Zoom, but interestingly, we got a lot of people talking about connections with friends and family. Uh, uh, a lot of people talked about exercise classes, but roughly equal numbers talked about uh, going to uh, church services and being uh, spiritual online. Many people asked about vaccination information and news, lots of people doing Facebook, but not quite as many as some of these other elements and cultural events. And then there's really a whole range of other activities, online banking and shopping and social activities and things like that. So we're finding a real diversity of activities that people are participating in online. And then most recently, we sponsored a thing called Aging Connected, supported by the Humana Foundation. It's a national effort to get older people signed up for the internet at home. We did a research report and we found that um, large numbers of older people are not participating at the same uh, rates as the younger population in terms of using different types of technology. Internet use is lower. Uh, most of these elements are 20 to you know, almost 30% uh, lower in terms of participation by older adults. And particularly the broadband gap at home is something that we're zeroing in on. 58% of older people in America have internet at home, which means that 42% do not. And uh, of that group, that, that's about 21.8 million people that are currently uh, still needing to get a broadband at home in order to participate in the kinds of initiatives that so many people are using uh, on their daily, in their daily lives. So we've been advocating around the country to get people more active about this and also showcasing that these are, there are equity issues where a lot of the people that are not online are disproportionately Medicaid enrollees or people with functional impairments or people that have uh, the report frequently depressive symptoms all more likely to be off the internet and need help getting uh, online at home. There are all these elements around demographics and race and income and, and rural residents that tend to predict people being offline. And it's become a real social justice challenge for people to close that digital divide for older adults. Um, obviously, COVID has magnified the impact of this because so many of the people that have passed away from COVID obviously are older, but connectivity and the lack of access to information and support through digital channels makes it harder for people and harder for people to stay safe. Um, we identified a series of paths forward, obviously helping people learn about the value of broadband, expanding access to low-cost offers. There are new subsidy programs available, the emergency broadband benefit and other sources of uh, resources for older people to get online, in many cases with government uh, funding and support, and also prioritizing the social equity components of this and helping other uh, communities out there develop content and support localized efforts to bring people online and support people when they go online. For people that want to get in touch, here's a quick sort of rundown of ways to connect with Senior Planet just so that you can uh, find us online. Seniorplanet.org is the best place to start if you're looking for programming. Uh, again, all of our programs are free. They're generally targeted at people over the age of 60, uh, although 
we get many people uh, between the ages of 50 and 60 that participate, and we get people all the way up into over 100 years old that have participated in programs. So you'll find a real range of things on seniorplanet.org, but classes are there, um, book clubs, programming, it's a great place to start. Learning more about OATS, the organization, you can take a peek at oats.org and learn about our licensing program if there are people in communities that want to get, get involved, different kinds of client projects that we do, and learn more about the affiliation with AERP and how that's been developing. And then the Aging Connected Initiative is helping people get online, and we do have tech hotlines available for people that need direct support and uh, referrals in terms of what to do while they're trying to connect to the internet. So that's pretty much the story that I want to share. I will stop sharing my screen and we will go back to the format with the webinar. Thank you folks for, for listening to that. Thank you, Tom. So it's uh, now my pleasure to introduce Dr. Eric Granholm, uh, professor of psychiatry and chief of the psychology service at the VA San Diego healthcare system. Uh, he received his PhD in clinical psychology at UCLA and joined the department of psychiatry at UC San Diego in 1993. Today, Dr. Granholm is an active researcher in ecological momentary assessment, which I dare say has something to do with being able to track time and location precisely, and mobile interventions for schizophrenia and Alzheimer's disease, and is the director of the UC San Diego Center for Mental Health Technologies, uh, MH Tech. Uh, he developed a psychosocial intervention for schizophrenia called uh, Cognitive Behavioral Social Skills Training and conducted five NIMH and VA-funded clinical trials uh, uh, to test out CBSST for schizophrenia. Uh, its uh, treatment manual has been published in multiple languages and delivered in North America, Europe, and Asia. Uh, his current research combines CBSST with mobile smartphone interventions for serious mental illnesses. Dr. Granholm. Okay, well, uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Jesty for inviting me to come and talk about technology, uh, really technology interventions for older people with serious mental illness. I'm going to talk about some of my own work in this area, but it's more going to be a tour of different kinds of technology approaches um, uh, to help people with serious mental illnesses. So what are serious mental illnesses? Uh, these are schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder. Um, very often, this includes psychosis, which are hallucinations or hearing voice, like hearing voices, and delusions, which are firmly held beliefs that you really can't talk people out of despite conflicting evidence, uh, like being watched or followed. It's, these are very, very common illnesses. Over 13 million people in the United States have serious mental illnesses. They're actually a little more common in younger people than older people, um, possibly because there's a higher mortality. In, in these illnesses with people dying from suicide and other health problems that accompany these illnesses like cardiovascular illness. The lifetime burden of these illnesses is $1.85 million per person for each of those 13 million people. So there's a huge public health burden of these illnesses. And despite all of this, only about 65% of people actually receive any treatments for these illnesses. So technologies might help us close that gap and get access to treatment for more people. What kinds of technologies? So we heard about smartphone apps uh, from Dr. Torres earlier today. I'll talk a little bit more about those um, for serious mental illness. And there's also virtual reality or what they call serious gaming, I guess, as opposed to fun gaming, but games that are meant to teach or help. I'm gonna talk a little bit about neurofeedback and augmented reality and robots. There's all kinds of technology approaches uh, that might be helpful. So smartphones are probably the most common and um, there's lots of ways smartphones might be able to help uh, close this gap. They can increase access to uh, treatments by having people do therapies and uh, talk to their therapists on their phone, chat, text, FaceTime, use apps to help. And so they can increase access to pe for people in rural areas and, and move the clinic to wherever the people are, really. Um, they uh, can reduce the burden of therapist time. We have a tremendous shortage of psychiatrists, psychologists in this country. Um, and uh, apps, if, if apps shorten the length of treatment, maybe by strengthening those treatments um, so that the number of sessions to be delivered could be lower, apps uh, could increase access that way. And apps help just in, help us not forget to take our medicines and do 
what we need to be doing to go out and exercise or whatever, but apps can prompt a lot of beneficial activities. And then there's all those sensors like Ramesh mentioned. Um, you can pretty much measure a lot of things. You can do an EKG with your wrist, with your Fitbit or your Apple Watch. You can measure, you can mine someone's GPS coordinates, know if people are staying home and alone all the time or leaving the house, measure heart rate, all kinds of health-related things with steps and sleep. Um, and when you measure these kinds of things and have access to them on the phone, you could do what's called a just-in-time intervention, which is if someone's home all the time, uh, you could prompt them to leave just in time. That's what those uh, are. That's what that means. So mobile-assisted uh, cognitive behavioral social skills training is an intervention that we developed, as uh, Ramesh said in the introduction, I developed this intervention with John McQuaid um, uh, here in, at UC San Diego um, called Cognitive Behavioral Social Skills Training. And it, it combines cognitive behavioral theory with therapy, which is basically checking out your thoughts about things that might make you sad or not do what you need to do. And uh, role plays like communication skills training, which is social skills training. Um, and we've done a bunch of RCTs. This one I'm going to tell you here is in, in older adults where we tried to um, strengthen and shorten the intervention by using an app. So CVSST is, is a long intervention. It's 24 to 36 weeks, which is a long time to go to therapy or to these group classes for two hours a week um, in a clinic. And so we thought maybe if we added an app, we could cut the, the, the work of the sessions down. And the app prompted homework and skill, told people to do the skills that were trained in the group and had symptom monitoring features. And then we used as a control group another app, which is just monitoring symptoms only and not doing anything with skills and no groups to learn skills. But they stayed in their medication and other treatments. And well, what happened is uh, this blue line here is the full CVSST intervention, which improved functioning uh, well. And then this red line here is the intervention plus the app. So it's about half the therapist's time, but despite that, it still improved functioning better than just irregular treatment and just monitoring symptoms. However, not quite as good. Um, these two lines don't really differ, um, but both of them do differ from this one down here. Um, but it worked, but not quite as good. And uh, I think apps help therapists do the therapy. I, maybe they can't work quite as well as all the therapy time, but with a lot less burden, it worked pretty well. Other people are doing these kinds of what are called blended interventions. There actually are a few for older people with um, serious mental illness. This is by the Steve Bartles group at Dartmouth and Fortuna is the lead author. And um, they've been piloting this interesting intervention called peer tech, which is um, peers. So other people with serious mental illness who are doing well uh, and know this intervention called illness management and recovery, which is teaching people skills in order to uh, recover uh, and uh, has a lot of the similar things in CVSST, which checking out thoughts and doing role plays with them. Um, and they added an app to that that prompted them to do the skills much like we did in our study. And it's interesting because there's no therapist. So we don't, we have a shortage of psychologists, but we don't need them to run this. These are uh, the patients themselves running the groups. And um, it, it worked pretty well in this pilot study where people engaged with the app and, and showed some improvements in their daily life um, in the intervention. So I think there's some promise for serious mental illness for these apps combined with in-person therapies. This is, the, the phones can also measure all those things I mentioned. Well, one of the things we started measuring with these phones is pupillary responses. And I'll tell you why in a minute. I know that sounds strange, but you can measure someone's dilation while they sit in front of a computer and do certain tests um, using these cameras that just videotape the eye basically and digitize it and turn it into a diameter. And you can measure people's pupil responses. Well. Phones have cameras too, and so you can do the same thing. And Edward Wong and his graduate student Colin Barry here at UC San Diego um, have developed an app for that, um, and we've been testing it. Um, and so, why would you measure pupillary dilation? Well, it turns out it might be a good digital biomarker that might help us uh, 
identify risk for dementia like Alzheimer's disease. So how could that work? Well, your pupil actually dilates more and more the harder you, you work. So if you try to remember more numbers, your pupil gets bigger each number you try to remember. So the more effortful processing or cognitive effort you put in, the bigger your pupil gets. So it's a way to measure how hard someone's trying to do a test. Now, how could that help you with Alzheimer's disease? Well, when you're trying to identify someone who might be having a memory impairment, we give them memory tests. Well, we look at their scores and see if their scores are changing or if they're different from normative samples. But sometimes people can have the same score, but work harder to get that score. And the idea is that if you had to work harder to get the same number of numbers correct, for example, then you might be closer to decline in your memory because your memory is starting to fail and you have to work harder to do the test. So we've had people remember three digits, six digits, and nine digits. Nine's like impossible, super hard. And um, uh, we found that people who have amnestic MCI, which is they're starting to have some memory problems, but they don't have Alzheimer's disease, are trying harder to get these numbers right. Now, most, you know, everyone can remember three digits, but in order to get those three digits right, the people who are at higher risk for Alzheimer's disease are having to work harder. So the pupil provides an index of how much effort you put in and might help us identify early risk for Alzheimer's disease. The earlier you can identify someone who might end up declining, the earlier you can do interventions and we might have uh, more effectiveness of those interventions the earlier we try them. So with a smartphone, we might be able to have people measure their own pupil dilation at home. And we've been doing that with people to test out this new uh, smartphone device or in your primary care doctor's clinic and, and you can have information about how much uh, effort you had to do to do a memory test. So I'm going to leave smartphones now and move on to virtual reality. Well, what's that? So usually you put on those Oculus goggles um, or you can do it like in this picture here where uh, this woman is doing um, a virtual reality training on a computer screen. So it, you're sort of embedded in the picture and you're, you play a game um, where you can move your hands around and move around in this virtual reality space. This is a study out of China with older adults. Um, there's very little work done in older people with uh, serious mental illness. Um, and um, this is another small pilot study where they've been doing cognitive training where you have to do things like point where the yellow, a yellow bird will appear and you have to remember where it was and then you point where it was, practicing memory skills like that. And they showed some improvement in memory during this virtual reality intervention. We did a virtual reality study in people with schizophrenia. Um, this was done with Sohi Park, who's at Vanderbilt University in her group. And they developed this interesting virtual reality social skills training intervention where um, people explore these environments. Uh, like in this case here, it's a cafeteria. And so, and they learn how to do communication skills and engage with people in these environments in these artificial environments. So that might make them more ready to try it in the real world. So they have to go on these quests, like find out someone's name. Um, and they go, they go into the cafeteria or they, or here's one at a bus stop where they have to choose. They can choose anyone to approach. And like the quest here might be to find out when the next bus is coming to, to introduce yourself and ask a question and start and maintain a conversation with these avatars. And the, the platform also measures where the person's looking using those kind of pupillometry um, devices. And you could tell where someone's looking on the screen. And one of the things we teach in social skills training is to make eye contact. And so um, their job is to look at the green face here and make eye contact with this person. And you could tell whether they're doing it or not. And if they're not, you could say, don't forget to make eye contact. So this is an example of how you teach some of these social skills using these virtual platforms. And all these lines here just show that um, whether the test was easy, not so uh, easy, and then difficult, people make fewer errors on what they say to people and, and, and learning the specific skills and getting the quests. And this is how long it took them to fixate on the person's eyes to make good eye contact. And you can see that's going down as they practice on this virtual platform. Another totally different technology now, 
um, that we've been using in uh, physicists and Iwei Shu's lab. They are, do a lot of EEG, electroencephalogram work. Um, what's happened in the world of EEG is that you used to have to put wet electrodes on all over your head. It took a long time. It was, it's yucky. Your hair gets gooey. Now you could just put on this headband, which is dry electrode. There's no wires. Um, or this one, which is very popular. It's called the Muse. And it basically measures your brain waves. Your, it does an EEG and it, it Bluetooth or through a wireless connection sends the information to a computer or a tablet or a smartphone. And um, the Muse is basically done for meditation or mindfulness work where it measures whether you're doing alpha, which is a calm, when you're calm, your brain goes into this alpha brain wave. Um, and you basically can teach yourself to put yourself into alpha because you get feedback from the device about whether you're in it or not. Um, this one has more electrodes um, from a local company called Cognionics that we've been using and uh, can measure things like frontal gamma, which is a faster waveform with more electrodes. And I'll tell you what neurofeedback is now. So neurofeedback is like a kind of biofeedback. This has been around for decades. Basically, you can learn how to change your, uh, a biological signal through just practice and sort of reinforcing yourself. If you know what, whether your heart's beating faster, you can beat it faster. <laughs> if you, um, and it's the same for brain waves. So you, can, you measure people's brain waves and the computer sorts out what state they're in. Is it alpha or gamma? What kind of frequency are neurons firing in your brain? And you extract that, and if you're in, if you want to train someone to increase alpha, you give them feedback when they're in alpha. If you want to train them to increase gamma, which is a faster brain wave, you could increase your gamma. Well, how do you do that, and how do you make it fun? Well, you have an application like a game. These are snowboarders racing down the hill, and your snowboarder won't move unless you go into gamma. And so when you put yourself in gamma, you move, you can win the race. And so... It's kind of a weird thing. If you ever sit down and do it, your the instruction to the participant is put yourself in gamma, you know, do, make the make the snowboarder win the race. And you don't know what you're doing, but you do learn how to do it <laughs> by just having feedback to whether you're doing it or not. And you can train yourself to go faster down the hill over session over. We have them come in twice a week for a half hour each and do this in the lab. But with the promise of these headbands, we might be able to do it from home. So why do we train gamma? Well, it turns out gamma is linked, these gamma oscillations, which are fast, 40 times a second, um, in the frontal lobes are linked to something called working memory, which essentially is working with memory. So you have to remember what's things in order to manipulate information and do things like, well, are, where am I on my recipe or telephone number? It's limited. Telephone numbers are seven plus or minus two or seven numbers for a reason, because you really can't remember much more than seven things at a time about the average um, memory limits. And so we thought, oh, well, if we, if gamma is linked to memory, what if we teach people to increase gamma and um, maybe their working memory will improve. This was uh, Physics Singh's idea and it's a great one. Um, and that's exactly what happened in her project. She brought people in and in the lab, they learned to increase their uh, gamma power um, by playing these games while hooked up to EEG machines and um, gamma increases over the 12 sessions that they practiced. And importantly, this is busy, but there's a lot of bars here and the dark bars is before gamma training and the the light bars after, and you see increase in a lot of cognitive domains, not just memory, as people learn how to increase their gamma power. We've also tried this more recently in just a few people with um, mild cognitive impairment, which, as I said, is that, that um, sort of high-risk state before Alzheimer's disease, where people are starting to have some memory problems. And um, we have some older adults with these problems coming in and doing um, gamma training and neurofeedback, and their memory is improving as they do the training over 12 weeks relative to what's called a sham or a mock, where they sit down and they think they're playing the game, but there's no, feed, there's no accurate feedback about whether they're in gamma or not. And um, 
the snowman, the sledder is just sort of randomly going down the hill at different speeds. And what's interesting is that change in gamma over the treatment is correlated with the change in, in memory. So it, it might be that the gamma training is what's the key component here. So I'm going to leave neurofeedback. I told you I was sort of taking you on a quick tour around a bunch of technologies, and there's a lot of them. So sorry to be rushing through each one, but I wanted to sort of give you a taste of each one. Um, and there's a lot of robotics. Uh, there's a lot of different kind of robots people are, are trying to use to help older adults. Not so much older adults with serious mental illness yet, but there's a lot of potential uh, with this as well. Um, there's Pearl and Hobbit and um, Carabot and RoboCare. <laughs> and this one, iCat, which I think is a little creepy. Um, but this one has facial expressions to sort of have a more interpersonal uh, communication with you. Um, but they do lots of different things. Um, there's lots of support that they might offer. So just simple activities of daily living, like carrying and reaching or reaching things or carrying heavy objects, helping people get up, helping people walk around and uh, there's some cognitive support, like arranging appointments, reminding people of appointments, reminding people to take medications. Um, there's some emergency monitoring. These, these robots can tell if someone falls and they can contact someone about it. Um, some of these robots are being used to improve, reduce loneliness uh, by having people interact with robots, or sometimes the robot has a screen, screen that can connect with people the person uh, knows uh, who's not there. So just some quick tour of some of the robots. There's not a lot of work in it. There's actually no work in this in serious mental illness yet. And the last one I'm going to tell you about real quick as I'm just out of time is augmented reality. So um, this mixes sort of virtual worlds and real worlds together. So that's what I mean. It's reality, but it's augmented. So you might put an animated figure in a screen or you can put feedback in a, in, in, in a screen. There's some pretty fancy things. So someone might be looking at another person and maybe you, you have trouble telling whether someone's happy or sad or angry because you can't read emotions and faces very well. This has been done in autism, for example. And the, the eyeglasses in this case, like this is Google Glass here. If you've heard of Google Glass, there's a camera here that sees the face of the other person and can actually categorize facial emotions and then feeds back to the person that what the emotion of the other person might be. So this can get pretty fancy um, and uh, do some pretty amazing things. Um, so the ways it's been used in older adults, not older adults with SMI yet um, is um, there's Google Glass, for example, can give you directions or cues when to turn, just like your GPS does on your phone. Um, but more than that, like it'll provide feedback of whether you're turning smoothly when you make, say, a left turn. Um, and then it can also make shopping suggestions. So when you're looking at the food on the shelf, it can actually categorize the food and say, don't buy that. You should buy this low sodium item. You know, it'll make suggestions while you're looking at the shelf with the glasses on. So. This is the kind of things um, people are doing with augmented reality. This, this, these games to improve balance is like you'll actually walk through a room and practice walking through. Really, this is more of a virtual reality uh, game. Practice walking through a room uh, so you uh, don't fall uh, when there's stairs and practice different things like that. So that's um, give you a quick look at augmented reality. Again, nothing in uh, serious mental illness. Yeah. Uh, that's it. I'd like to thank you for listening and I'll turn it over to Ramesh for, um, Q and A at this point. Thank you very much. Uh, we are starting to see a bunch of questions coming up. Uh, but let me, uh, uh pose a question of my own. Um, uh, uh, I mean it in a more general way, but I'll be specific. Uh, the question is about uh, the hijacking of attention that can take place on these online platforms. Uh, so they are watching uh, how attentive the end user is and often push ads or beams uh, that can sometimes uh, generate addictive or other adverse behavior. Uh, so as we get 
uh, more and more attached to these devices. Is there a concern here that there are these unintended ways in which uh, other applications might be interacting with the end user uh, that we should be paying more attention to? You know, yes, it's absolutely a consideration and a concern for people. I think where it's really important to think a little bit, though, where we are in the progression of people uh, engaging with these tools and beginning to adopt them and the kinds of unintended consequences that may be coming as a result of it. There are roughly 40% of older adults are not using uh broadband and other kinds of digital technologies in the same at the same level as the younger population. And so there's a group of people that are really in a, in a, a kind of wait and see mode. Um, many people who've wanted to be using technology and are feeling really isolated and excluded from it and are very concerned and anxious about the implications. You know, is this something that's going to result in identity theft or um, some kind of um, you know, cognitive crisis for people. Um, there's a, a lot of concern around privacy and various factors. And so for that population, our general advice is try not to be so afraid yet. You know, we're not there yet. We're still trying to get people to use mainstream devices. The real risk that people are facing is non-participation in mainstream activities, which for many older adults increases isolation, increases the strain on their social and uh, other uh, uh, environmental factors. And so we're sort of tech enthusiasts. Uh, for people that are online, there's definitely the concern around not just um, the addictive qualities of, you know, too many puppy videos or, or getting sucked into, uh, um, you know, marketing for companies that might be, um, you know, peeling your, your wallet away from you over time, uh, but also things like misinformation, um, uh, challenges where people have, uh, you know, self, uh, self image challenges that we're encountering with things like, um, Instagram and, and looking at so many pictures of people that have been touched up over the years. And, uh, so there are definitely risks and challenges to people, uh, using the technologies. Our position on it has been that for most older people, the main challenge is, is, is getting online and beginning to make uh, intentional choices about the technology. And while we're at it, in shaping the technology world as well. So privacy restrictions that have been uh, part of the, uh, the changes for how people are, are um, uh, using um, websites and using e-commerce and things like that, uh, reasonable regulations that have been put into place both in the EU and the United States in recent years, um, considerations around misinformation. We're teaching workshops on it with AERP. We're having thousands of people participate in these events to learn more about how to stay safe and, and not be uh, victimized by the technology that we're using. So I think that as people become more active, Older people can shape the technology universe as well and help guide these uh, these tools into healthier standard areas. So, yes, it's a concern uh, for certain individuals that are heavy users uh, that may be uh, struggling with addictive uh, challenges that they have. I think what uh, cognitive things that Eric is talking about, uh, treatment and, and self-awareness and community support for people are necessary and there will be ongoing challenges around this. But the bigger picture to me is uh, trying to develop a more uh, kind of fruitful and healthy uh, ecosystem that protects people in reasonable ways, but also allows them particip to participate and be part of these things. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, so there is a question, if I might paraphrase it, uh, on enlisting retired teachers, nurses, doctors uh, who already have the training, the wisdom, the knowledge and the experience uh, in uh, socializing some of these new possibilities into uh, uh, the older adults population. Uh, this is probably uh, right up your alley, Tom. That's <laughs> two in a row. Okay. Um, the, yes. <laughs> we, we, we've been working a lot with, with peer training and peer, uh, peer programming for quite a, a few years. There's a, a, several things have happened here. One is uh, OATS used to do a lot of um, youth-oriented uh, intergenerational training. So a lot of people get excited about the idea of young people training older people on technology because young people are digital natives and older people are digital immigrants. It's their, they didn't grow up with this stuff. So it's a wonderful opportunity to close the gap with uh, across the generations. And in fact, last I heard, the uh, uh, there's a lot of um, uh, foundation support in California for intergenerational programs. We used to use them a lot. And then one year, about seven or eight years ago, we tested a program with youth trainers, 
against an almost identical version that used older adult peer trainers. And we found at Oats that the peer training program was more successful. Uh, when we were able to work with older adults doing the training and doing the work themselves uh, with each other, there was a kind of higher level of activation of their consciousness as, as kind of switched on older folks. And they began really working on project outcomes in a more um, intense and, and exuberant way, while the intergenerational model with younger people training was successful, but it was more focused on the technology and less on the social outcomes. So I, we have taken that to heart and really worked hard to hire more older adults in our training pool at OATS. We're also working with a really cool program at AARP called Experience Corps, uh, helping to train their volunteers that are doing that. There's a wonderful program called Encore out there that uh, brings older retirees and people that are volunteers together to do programming around these sorts of topics. And we're doing third-party licensing training now with organizations that employ and deploy a lot of older volunteers to do this kind of work. We think that is the best way to do it. Um, we personally, from, from, from my point of view, I like to pay people. I think if, if people are doing the work and we can create some income around it, there's a real value add and a social benefit to the work that older people are doing, doing this kinds of pure uh, supported training. And if we can employ them, we do. And we've been uh, building our, our kind of employment practice as well and, and trying to encourage others to do that. But there's really a lot of value to bring older people to the, to the table here as trainers. And we've had great success with it. We haven't had almost any problems with people not being able to learn the technology or, or execute the program. So uh, yes. Excellent. Now, a, I'll just add to that, Ramesh. That's a great question. Um, and, you know, lots of people develop lots of apps or you build a robot or you, you make this this new technology and then you wonder why no one uh, uses it <laughs> because you didn't ask them what they wanted. You didn't ask them anything during the design phase. And now there's a there's there's wide recognition of that, that that's not the way to do it. And there's user centered design where you you have iterations where before you even start to build it, you say, what should we be doing? And then there's, um, you know, prototypes and you show those to people and you say, would you ever use this thing? And um, there's things that go through this iterative process of user-centered design are, are way more likely to be helpful to people um, because you took all the stakeholders and you brought them in and you got them involved in, in designing it. Excellent. Eric, uh, there's a question coming your way. Uh, I'm going to elaborate on it because I love the question, uh, having played with it myself. The question is about the subjective experience with neurofeedback. Uh, so uh, what does it actually feel subjectively to increase gamma power? Even though it's a hard measurable thing, what's going through the mind or the thoughts uh, that a person is experiencing to increase something like gamma power? Absolutely nothing. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't feel like you, you can't feel your brain waves. Um, um, it, you probably could if you were doing biofeedback for like heart rate and other things, but um, it's a very strange experience to do this or, you know, to use the muse or whatever, because you're just going through and changing, you know, the, the speed of the, the person in the race and you don't really know what you're doing. And if you ask someone, what did you do to make your gamma power go up? They would say, I have no idea. Um, they just did it. So it, it, it doesn't feel like anything. <laughs> Is that true about other kinds of activation, uh, like alpha? Uh, that's a good question, because when you do those, you're, the whole point is to calm yourself. Um, like when you do the mindfulness things where you're going into alpha, you might, uh, you might feel um, calmer. Um, I don't know if I've ever asked if everyone if they felt not, what, what would you, if you go into gamma, do you think you might feel stressed and like, like wired? <laughs> um, so it's a good question. No one's ever told me that, but I've never asked them either. Like no one ever said, Oh, I can't do this. I'm getting too, you know, wired. <laughs> they say it's great because I'm starting to remember things better sometimes, but they notice changes, but not in feelings like that while they're doing it. So it's frustrating. People get frustrated you're told to do these this thing and you just get feedback about whether you're doing it or not and you're like you know you could get frustrated a little bit at first um, until you figure it out so maybe this is a related question uh, which has to do with uh, are there ar interventions that might help people who are visually impaired uh there's there's ira does that uh, that count are you familiar with ira eric um yeah 
Ira is A-I-R-A. Um, for people that are interested in, for the visual impairment issue, I think if that, that's what you're saying, asking about Ramesh, um, it's, a, it's a subscription service that I learned about from a gentleman who's part of the CTA Foundation Board. CTA is the technology, uh, the cons- um, well, it's the Consumer Electronic Show uh, organization that runs that gigantic show in Las Vegas every year. They're very interested in technology and disabilities. And one of their board members um, turned me on to this thing called Ira. He's blind. And it's a, basically it's a little camera that goes on his eyeglasses, but you can mount it anywhere on your body. And uh, with your smartphone, when you want to activate it, you just push a button or you say something to your phone, it switches the camera on and you have an earpiece and it will simply a person, a live person on the other end will, will just tell you what the camera is showing. So it's a classic augmented reality play uh, with a human being involved, but it's augmenting your reality by you walk around and, and if you turn on the IRA system, uh, people will tell you, aha, look, it came from UCSD. Go, go UCSD for IRA. I'm uh, just seeing this in the chat coming through. But there's a, it's an amazing uh, program. I, I was absolutely bowled over. The guy was showing me walking around in Manhattan in, uh, in traffic on the sidewalk. And he just turned it on. And it said, you know, you are looking at, uh, you're walking down the sidewalk. There's a garbage can in front of you a few feet, about two feet to your right. Uh, about 15 feet, you're going to get the, to the curb. And uh, there's a curb cut there. And it was literally just just kind of uh, narrating what he was looking at. And uh, whenever you turn the screen, he turned the screen and showed me. And they said, oh, there's a scruffy looking guy there talking to you. It was actually really a great a great augmented reality tool. And I, I was very impressed with it. We have uh, just a few more minutes left. Uh, we have time for one or two questions. Uh, but in the meantime, Eric or Tom, if you have some thoughts, final thoughts that you want to share with the group, now, now's your time. Wow. Uh, I guess I'll go first because I went first in the presentation. Um, but first of all, we're just thrilled to be having this conversation. I, I, I was out at UCSD a bunch of years ago um, speaking uh, at when the center launched and, and um, just am thrilled to see so much energy and, and, and continuing research. I was uh, I learned a lot from Eric already today, and I'm, I, I just got back doing meditation workshops at Modern Elder Academy down in Baja, California, focused on getting older people to meditate more. So it's first time I'm a first timer here, but I thought it was really great on the technology front for older adults. We are working to build a 50 state strategy now where we've been very successful getting people to learn technology for free. Now with AARP really behind us and pushing uh, these these changes that were, you know, in terms of our growth and our impact, we're going to be. Uh, working in all 50 states within the next couple of years. And so there are partner organizations out there that we're looking to find that are wanting to use our curriculum and deliver things uh, at the grassroots level. We have found that older people can learn this technology. Um, It's amazing how well people do when they are supported and people come to the table with specific um, goals and they want to learn the tech. And uh, we get people on iPads, on Chromebooks and using smartphones and using AR and VR and gaming. There's a lot of enthusiasm once people get started. Uh, There's a social dynamic to this in terms of building policy and funding around it. And, um, you know, feel free to follow up with us. We're we're really uh, making a lot of progress here, and we think it's a it's a it's a good area for people to put some energy into. It's all a call to action there. Eric, any final thoughts? Just uh, I'll make a call to action. If anybody wants to do the neurofeedback study, it's ongoing. If you're an older adult and you uh, have concerns about your memory, you might be eligible, and <laughs> you could find out what it feels like to change your gamma. You might get randomized to sham, but you might get 50-50 chance you'll get into the gamma. <laughs> Very good. I'm tempted to volunteer. <laughs> yeah, email me. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, to both our panelists uh, and the questions. Uh, uh, these meetings have always been stimulating, if not for ourselves directly, for our loved ones uh, who might be uh, who we might be caring for, and thinking of ways of uh, informing ourselves better uh, so that we can be more effective. Let me thank the panelists and the audience and. Uh, Move on to the next panel. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.